Welcome, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com. I'm your host, Andy Zoden, and our show features the great Mats Vilander, former number one in the world, winner of seven major championships. We also feature former Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, and we are very excited to be with you. We are now part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We want to thank David Egdis and Ari Cohen for working with us. We're super excited to be a part of Tennis Channel in any way we can, so thank you guys very much, and hopefully you guys are going to enjoy what you hear. First thing I want to do is introduce Mats Vlander. and Mats, you recently bought a club out in Haley, Idaho, Gravity Fitness and Tennis, and it's something that's very near and dear to your heart, your latest project in life. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's this old uh, tennis club that courts are I was built about 35 years ago, um, and there are three uh, really good indoor courts, and, and there's a gym uh, built right next to it, adjacent to it, that we uh, finished on the inside. We turned it into gravity, fitness, and tennis. Uh, we opened in November of 2018. Always been a dream, of course, uh, for me, and I think for any uh, professional tennis player to at some point own your own little tennis club and, and try to... Uh, run your own ideas of how you think people uh, would enjoy tennis the most. So for me, yeah, it's really exciting. It's very close to, to where I live. Uh, it's minutes away, so hopefully I can have uh, a lot of people come and visit and come and enjoy the area that is more well-known as Sun Valley. Uh, we have a great ski mountain, great, great cross-country skiing, unbelievable fly fishing, I'm told. Uh, good golf courses and of course tennis. So yeah, a, a dream uh, come true. I look at it as uh, if it becomes profitable. I say it's my eighth major. All right. Well, congratulations. Best of luck to you. And I know that is God's country out there. And I know Johnny and I are looking forward to going out for a visit. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to know more about that. Now, you guys were calling today the first dance. Obviously, we're capitalizing on. Another documentary that's doing quite well out there right now. And what I wanted to start with today was to take a look back and compare and contrast where you guys were with your development as junior players. We'll start with you, Johnny, because although you worked a lot with Mort Stone out there in Phoenix for many years and he helped make you uh, one of the top juniors in the United States, uh, you kind of put the cherry on top when you went out to Boletaries. You weren't one of the very first players to go out there, but you were right on the heels of, of Jimmy Arias and Aaron Crickstein, Tom Fontana, some great players. Talk about your experience at Boletaries and what that kind of gave you to give you the edge uh, right before becoming a really good college player. Yeah, Andy, I basically, you know, grew up in Phoenix playing tennis and the Southwest Tennis uh, Association consisted of a, a few states out west and the competition was pretty good. I played a lot in California as a junior. And, you know, I finished high school a little early and I had some time off and I, I felt like I wanted to get some more competition before the summer junior circuit, uh, my last summer junior circuit before going to college. And so I spent some time out at Nick Boletari's and, and there were a lot of great players out there. And uh, the idea behind Boletari's really was capturing, you know, a lot of the top juniors in the country and getting them all together so that they can compete with each other and really maximize everyone's game. I mean, uh, Nick was a great promoter, uh, great at attracting players. Um, and obviously, you know, with Jimmy Arias being his first student, uh, the focus was, was the forehand, which, uh, 
you know, he was really big on teaching that forehand. And I really believe that my game picked up that semester, my last semester of high school, being out there, working with those guys and, and, and focusing and really working hard on my forehand. I think it really became a good weapon and it, it ended up being a great experience for me being out of Voluntaries. We saw what happened with Andre Agassi's game. We saw what happened with Jim Courier's game. Uh, we saw what happened with Aaron Krikstein's game. You already mentioned Jimmy Arias. So clearly, if Nick Boliteri was focusing on creating players with great forehands, he certainly hit the mark. Now, Mats, it was a little different from you. You're growing up in Sweden. Uh, you're, you're, you're kind of in the wake of the Bjorn Borg era. You had an opportunity to train with Borg. You guys had some amazing players in your era of juniors in Sweden. But clearly, it was a different approach to learning how to play the game. It was completely different, Andy. Um, the club that I grew up playing, uh, my uh, most of my indoor tennis, uh, didn't actually have a teaching professional. There was no one that was hired uh, full-time. No one was getting paid uh, at the club. Everyone was doing uh, voluntarily. So uh, the system was that we, as juniors, we got to, to play with the best players in the club, uh, men and women, and it was their responsibility to run junior clinics and, and junior uh, coaching, uh, obviously being good players, they had some idea, but like I've never paid or my parents have never paid for a private lesson because they just didn't have it in my club. If you came from Stockholm, Gothenburg, Malmo, our three biggest cities, there were a few clubs that had some full-time pros. So we, we grew up playing a lot of points. Uh, we hit a lot of balls, of course, but we played a lot of points against different kinds of players, uh, older men, uh, the best girls in the club, um, just anyone. We even had a system where we, we would use a handicap so you could play up or down where you could to start at minus 15, meaning you have to win a point to get to zero in your game, and you might play somebody who's plus 15. And, of course, in those days, you couldn't hit any winners, so it was all about uh, a chess game. And I think we in Sweden, we grew up being pretty good at tactics. I uh, wish I had a forehand like uh, Jimmy Arias. Uh, and I think sometimes Jimmy wishes that he his forehand wasn't quite as good and he would have improved uh, the other aspects of his game. So just completely different, uh, but obviously uh, a successful situation for both situations. Johnny, you had a good run at the Orange Bowl in 1979. You bust through to the round of 16 where you would then run into, at the time, the number one seed, a guy from Sweden by the name of Mats Wielander as fate would have it. And you had a, a good go of it out there, it sounds like. You played him a, a nice match. But what did you see in Matt's game? He obviously won the tournament that year that was a little bit different from what you were seeing from the rest of the junior competition that you were normally used to seeing here in the United States. Well, basically, you know, I had a, a similar game to Matt's in the sense that I was a baseliner. I had some good speed. Um, you know, Matt's was, uh, even though he was a year younger than me, I think he was, you know, a bit stronger, a little taller than me. And he, he moved amazing. And I had never really seen a player move as well, if not better than me at that point in my junior career. And he did everything that I did, but, but just better and more consistent. And the match was, uh, you know, I just could not really put away the ball on him. I mean, he just, he ran down everything. He was very solid off both wings and very, very mentally strong and was not afraid of anything. So for me, uh, you know, he was the number one seed. I think he had had, you know, quite a, 
junior international career to that point, and I was a little intimidated for sure. I don't I don't think I was seated in the tournament, and I think Matts was was number one seed. So for me, I hadn't played a lot of international junior tournaments, but uh, this was a big moment for me, obviously. And uh, I think it was a couple years later that Matts went on to win the French Open. So he definitely uh, handled the pressure well. He his movement was amazing. His fitness was was incredible, and and then just no weakness off either side. So Matts was really uh, really amazing at a young age, and obviously at 17 he won the French Open. So it, it was a pretty the start of an amazing career. Obviously, you have to realize, you guys in America, that that was the first tournament that I have ever played where you call your own lines. Is that, that right? Was a wow! Huge challenge for us uh, Swedish players. There was a system in Sweden when you played junior tournaments. If you played on court one and you lost your match, it was your responsibility as the loser of the previous match to get up in the chair and call the next match. It didn't matter if the next match was a men's match or under 18. If you were 10, 11, 12 years old, didn't matter uh, unless you found another a person to sit in the chair. Some people got their, their mom or dad, but that, I never did that. So uh, to call your own lines was intimidating as anything. Uh, and then try to and try to play the best players in the world, especially you guys from America. So that was a big, big moment. First time in America, um, first time at a Marriott hotel, first time in Miami. Uh, it, it was a, a lot of challenges that somehow uh, I think. Can you do you remember who you played in the finals match? I know Zivinovich, I think played in that tournament. Do you recall that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Slobodan Zivinovich. I played along the way. I believe I beat Henri Leconte. The Frenchman, I think I beat him in the finals. Um, I played Slobodan Zivaginovic, obviously we played, but uh, yeah, it was uh, 1979. I mean, I literally turned pro a couple of months after that, so I didn't really go to high school. I finished nine years of regular school. Um, I grew up kind of improving my game on the road more than at home. I just happened to have a, a couple of decent sponsors and was able to uh, that, that paid my expenses, but I really had to get better while traveling. Well, and you got pretty good real quick, right, Andy? I mean, it's amazing. Well, you know, you you made mention, Johnny, of something that I wanted to segue into, which is winning the French at at age seventeen, and and prior to winning the French in eighty two, we had seen you know consistent domination in that tournament uh, by by Bjorn Borg, who you trained with as a youngster. Did did the the time on the court with Borg and the time around him help you sort of acclimate to what should be a, a, a ridiculous, a preposterous accomplishment for a 17-year-old to go out and win the French Open? But the fact that you were a disciple of Bjorn Borg, did that make you feel as though there was some sort of birthright that you should at least have an opportunity to do quite well there? Maybe not win it, but at least at least go out there and be uh, and be among the guys maybe second week. Well, I mean, the intimidation factor was still there, obviously. Uh, I played Guillermo Vilas in the finals in, in the French in 1982. Right? He, he beat me badly a couple of weeks before in Madrid, so I never had thought I had any chance of beating him. But, but yeah, of course, it, it helped being around Bjorn a little bit and, and practice with him a couple of times. But, but I think more than anything, it helped to sit up and watch Bjorn uh, on TV win those French Opens and how he beat Guillermo Vilas and how he would handle Jimmy Connors uh, at uh, at Wimbledon and, and once in a while at the US Open. So I think just having seen that and then trying to kind of imitate Bjorn in terms of the way I played, 
in terms of the way I train, my attitude, don't show emotions, don't show you're tired, don't make mistakes. Pretty easy role model to to uh, follow in terms of imitation. Obviously, it's not that easy to be successful, but I, thought, I, I think it was more that in Sweden that we saw that, well, this is how Bjorn does it. Well, I only know one way, which is the way Bjorn does it, so let me try it. And I think the other players, I think they saw ghosts. I think they saw Bjorn Borg's ghosts. Uh, in the all of the 80s and maybe even into the 90s with me and Anders Jared and uh, Stefan Edberg a couple of years later, Joachim Newstrom, Mikael Pernfors. I mean, we all played pretty much like Bjorn uh, uh, in terms of keeping the ball in place. So I think they thought that, well, hold on a second, we thought we were going to have a chance to win the French Open now that Bjorn is gone, but now there's another guy. Um, so, yeah, Bjorn Borg, I mean, he's the, the main reason why we have uh, such a great tennis history in Sweden. And then that would lend toward Swedish domination that went well outside of just your wingspan. I mean, your good friend Stefan Edberg, guys like Henrik Sundström, guys like Joachim Nyström and Anders Jared, and, and, and on and on and on. And there was, uh, as you said, for a period of almost a decade, there was five or six guys from Sweden in the top 20, and, and at one point I remember five guys in the top 10 from Sweden, and I have to believe that Bjorn Borg just had that kind of an effect on what was going on in the country. Oh, I mean, he's obviously our most probably our greatest athlete of all time in any sport, maybe the most important person to come out of Sweden and terms of putting Sweden on the, on the map in sports, but also in industry. Um, I think companies like Volvo and Saab, I think they exploded when people realized that, that Swedes are trustworthy, they try hard, and I think he just um, he just cemented that into people's minds, that Swedes uh, are, are good human beings and they try really hard. You know, we were all friends. That's the thing. We were all friends. So in 1988, I managed to win three of the four majors, and I lost in the quarters at Wimbledon. Well, that wasn't a big deal because Stefan Edberg was still in it. So instead of calling me... Uh, the press would just call him because they didn't want to talk to me. I lost. So to have these guys sort of cover for me if I didn't do well, and then I'm sure the other way around, obviously I would prefer uh, Wimbledon to be won by Stefan that year. Uh, and we're from the same state in Sweden. There's 24 states, and we're from the same little state. And we so we won all four majors. So I think that there, there was competition between us. But such a small country, we grew up together. We're always pulling for each other. We always had a great Davis Cup team. So much, much easier uh, for us in Sweden when there's sort of 15, 16 uh, friends that are in the main draws of Grand Slam tournaments in the 80s. So, Johnny, for you, who was that guy? I mean, obviously, in Sweden, it was pretty obvious who it was going to be. But was it Connors? Was it Mack? It just seems like there was a little bit more separation between those guys and the rest of the aspiring college players and pros like yourself. Was it just more of an overall big group of guys all sort of jockeying for a position, hoping to get a good opportunity to get a good education, play a high level of Division One tennis, and if you happen to play a little pro tennis, as you had quite a good career after playing at the University of Texas, or did you have somebody that you sort of kind of you know wanted to gravitate toward and, and use as a role model back in those days? Well, interestingly enough, you know, I, I, I idolized Borg, you know, like Matt said. And, 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 you know, I just love the way he played, you know, the baseline game and just as cool as a cucumber. I mean, and, and who wouldn't love that guy? And I, and everyone idolized him and I was sure one of them. I mean, obviously McEnroe and Connors were, were, were unbelievable, 
I, I admired Ash. I, you know, I just, I really liked the sportsmanship aspect of, of Borg and Ash. And I, and I kind of really followed those guys because of that. Uh, but especially Borg, just because he was just, I mean, he was amazing and he was such a stud and how he went from the French Open to Wimbledon back to back, I think five years in a row, winning both of those titles was, was a, a feat that no one had ever done. I mean, it was really an incredible thing, but I think the main thing was just the class act that Borg was. And, and, and I really, really admired that. So I, I would have to say Borg. And I would think it's safe to say that Mats V. Launder certainly followed in those footsteps admirably. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. I am joined by the great Mats V. Launder, former number one in the world, seven-time major winner, former Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a current issue that's being talked about and has been brought uh, into the news by the best tennis player of all time, Roger Federer. We've heard some comments from Darren Cahill on it, and that is, should the ATP and the WTA consider merging? And if so, should there be a commissioner that oversees the entire sport of tennis? We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden, joined by... Mats Vlander and Johnny Levine. And, fellas, I want to talk, as I said at the end of the last segment, about this concept of the merging of the ATP and WTA tours. Now, this is something that has been talked about since the days where Billie Jean King and that era of ladies' tennis started to really emerge as uh, a viable force to be reckoned with on the sports landscape. And now it has uh, it's come to light again. And I think in the midst of all of what we're dealing with with this coronavirus and the break that we're taking from the game, a lot of things are being reexamined. And, Matt, I want to start with you because you made some really good points when we chatted before about the difference in the two products and how the men's sport and the men's game, because of the best-of-five set matches, really is a little bit more like watching a marathon. And with the ladies' tennis predominantly being best-of-three, even in the major championships, uh, you can get run off the court pretty quick if you're not careful, and as a result, you're really seeing two very different strategies uh, when you see two players walk out onto a tennis court. Do you think this bodes well to try to bring these two tours together? Does it does it help the sport overall, in your opinion? Well, I think that's why the you know that's why the the majors are so fun to follow. Is that on the men's side? I mean, obviously on both sides, you're playing every other day. Um, and yes, it's true that it's nice to have a day off after you've played a, a four or five setter for three, four, five hours. Uh, but even so, the first hour, I always felt in a Grand Slam three out of five set match, the first hour is kind of, you're just trying to set up the situation and trying to find your tactics. There's no real panic uh, in that you have to have a good uh, first hour. Uh, you could be down a set and down a break and and you still have a, a set and a half, maybe a little bit more, to lose before you're out of the tournament. Now, if you change that and you go on to the women's side, if you're done a set and a break, especially in today's women's game where, where the ladies are hitting so hard and they got big serves, I mean, I cannot imagine the emotional stress that a professional uh, female tennis player feels before she goes on to play a Grand Slam match because these are historical Matches. It can change your life. It can change your career. 
And add to that the problem then suddenly that is the day off, because in a regular tournament, obviously, uh, the women would play a first round, a day off, and then they must probably play four days in a row. So you get on a, on a roll. In a, in a major, you play every other day. So you could win a match in the first round, 6-2, six, 6-2, two, six, two, take an hour and 10 minutes. You feel like you haven't hit a ball. Then you get a day off, and then you got to re, uh, uh, re-up it again for the following day. So you never really get into the groove for the men we play for five hours. Well, I need a day off. I might hit for half an hour, and then I get back on the horse. So I think that's why it's so fun and interesting to follow, because on the, on the women's side, we see that emotional stress. I think it's because of the scoring system more than it is because of the tennis. We see a lot of sort of 6-1 and suddenly 1-6 uh, second set, and then the, the third set is open. Um, that doesn't really happen on the men's side. You see a guy is down two sets to love. Somehow he comes back and wins three in a row, and everybody thinks, oh, that's amazing. I'm like, no, it's not. It took him two sets to figure out the right tactics. So I think the combination of the two is really important. I think the two tours have joined um, together more and more. Every year we see combined events. Of course, uh, Miami and uh, Indian Wells are the two leading uh, combined events. Uh, in my eyes, and then you got in Madrid, uh, you got the clay courts there, you got Italian Open in Rome. So uh, it's been happening more and more with women's professional tennis being uh, the highest paid uh, sport for professional women's um, athletics. I think that's uh, it's huge for them. And when they play the same tournament as the men, then they get paid the same. It's really important to note that when the women are on their own, and they're running the WTA tour, they are not making the same money that the men are making. So if we're going to make it uh, equal across the board, I think starting to join up would be um, a, a very, very important step in a direction that we need to take. Johnny, you are running the Arizona Tennis Classic, which is probably one of the strongest fields, if not the strongest field, on the Challenger Tour. You had Matteo Berrettini win the inaugural event in 2019. You were looking like you were going to have another great field in 2020 before we embarked upon what we're dealing with now. Now, you're dealing with a lot of sponsors and you're dealing with a lot of people who have a lot at stake with respect to uh, the success and the excitement level of the tour. It's a men's only event, but if you had an opportunity to run a tournament that gave your fans and your sponsors an opportunity to watch, let's say, a Coco Goff play tennis. You and I have watched a lot of tennis together at, as Matt's mentioned, Indian Wells, which is one of the premier non-slam events on the tour that includes both the men and the women. Do you feel that that combined product would offer a little bit more meat on the bone for the sponsors and advertisers that you're dealing with? You know, Andy, it's a good question. Um, I actually get asked it quite a bit when when the topic of the Arizona Tennis Classic comes up. I mean, it's often asked, is it men and women? And um, obviously, you know, it's just a men's event. But I do think there would be support um, to to have uh, combined men's and women's because I think, you, you know, like Matt said, I mean, the public likes, you know, the women's tennis has come a long way. I mean, it's tremendous competitive level, and um, there's a lot of great names, a lot of great stars. So I could see it working, and, and it obviously is a successful endeavor at the Grand Slams where you have both men's and women's. I think the, the, the fans want to see it. I think you have to have the right venue for it. I think you have to have the right space. 
and and again, you know, Matt's made the point. You know, when you get away from the the slams and you get away from you know Miami and Indian Wells, you know, I think it's it, I think it's a little trickier because it's what are the sponsors going to support? Are they going to support a merged uh, WTA and NATP or or you know you have sponsors that that specifically want to support the men's and you have sponsors that just want to do the women's? Can you can you combine them? And still, you know, have it equal where, you know, you have the same amount of money going towards the men and the women. Because I think if there's an imbalance there, I don't know that it's going to be equitable for for both sides. So um, I think the market would would let us know if it could work. uh, And I think it comes down to the finances. Um, Obviously, spectator-wise, it's great. It's just, but it it comes down to a money thing and, and a sponsor interest. Matt's Roger Federer and the top men players have come out in favor of this notion. Darren Cahill made some great points, and I think Darren is viewed as uh, as one of the more measured and intelligent approaches uh, in anything that he talks about that, that's tennis-related. So when he speaks, people have a tendency to listen. And, of course, he does have uh, a little bit of a dog in the fight on this issue because of the fact that um, he most notably works with with Simona Halep, but he also has his uh, analyst duties, as do you, uh, in his case with ESPN. He talks about a commissioner of the sport of tennis and that all of these different governing bodies come together for the sake of alleviating confusion with respect to ranking points and maybe creating some, some equity on, on the financial side of it. How do you feel about the concept of of a commissioner of the sport of tennis? And if so, what would that role look like? And who would two or three people that would come to mind that would be the right person for that? Um, well, I mean, I, I, it's hard to mention any names, of course, but yes, I do believe that uh, it's it's definitely a good time. I think that it's, uh, it's interesting that Roger Federer came out and tweeted that he thought it'd be a good idea because I think we have to um really get set up for the next wave of professional tennis both on the men's side and the women's side because there's a certain Roger Federer and Serena Williams that are both uh, uh considered the greatest players um in, in their fields of course they're pushing 40 years old and they're not going to be around forever and then and then of course you got Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic and they might have a couple of more years but but this is a golden era in men's professional tennis and with Serena Williams pushing uh trying to break the Margaret Court record of 24 Grand Slam titles suddenly you have Bianca Andreescu 19 year old who beats up on Serena Williams in front of her own fans in New York so um the diversity on the women's tour is incredible uh, and I have, I don't think we realize what the impacts are going to be, uh, both positive and some negative, uh, when, when Federer and Serena Williams, uh, walk away from this game, because at some point, um, uh, time is going to be their worst enemy. So I think we could, with having women and men, I think you could attract, um, fans across the board, because I do believe the people that come and watch men's tennis are not exactly the same as the people that come and watch women's tennis. I think if you're a family and you got a couple of kids, I bet you the 12-year-old girl would much rather go and watch uh, Serena Williams and Bianca Andresco and, and some of these uh, up-and-coming stars there rather than watching a Rafa Nadal. And if you ask the 12-year-old boy, well, 
he must probably rather watch Rafa Nadal uh, play than the women. So I think that the, there's a problem in tennis, uh, which is the average age of a tennis fan. They have come out with uh, saying that it's about 60 years old and it's not getting any younger. So I think we got to find a product that is attractive uh, to the fans. we got to find a product that shows on TV that we have young girls and young boys come out and we have older men and women that come out and um, of course most of the sponsors uh, would be running companies and, and those guys and women are pretty much in our age so I think that with, with combining you could turn tennis into a, a different product maybe mo not more attractive maybe not less but it's 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 time, I think, to try and globalize the sport in, in, on the grassroots level a little bit more than we have. We're kind of just riding along on this wave that, that is named Roger Federer and Serena Williams. And I think I'm not worried, but uh, there's an opportunity here that, that uh, out of necessity maybe has to happen. Well, before we go to break, I'll just chime in with I think we've got two young, very exciting players who bring very different temperaments to the court. We've got Coco Goff. I mentioned her earlier. She seems to me, from what I've seen, to have superstardom written all over her. And we've got Nick Kyrgios, for better or for worse, who is certainly must-watch tennis whenever he is on television. Or I know, Johnny, whenever we've had an opportunity to go watch him at Indian Wells, he is always the court that people want to gravitate to because probably for more than anything else, we do not know exactly what's going to happen, but anything could happen. He does it with his racket. He does it with his mouth. He obliterates rackets, but he is certainly a lot of fun to watch. When we come back, I want to talk to you guys about certain things with our sport. Now that we have had an opportunity to step away for a while to, to say kind of what are we proud of with the sport of tennis? We now have an opportunity to take a little bit of a 30,000 foot look at the sport since we've had to, you know, kind of take ourselves away from it, at least temporarily. And I want to hear what you guys have to say about that. You're listening to the first dance of the new kickserveradio.com. With myself, Andy Zoden, the great Mats Vlander, former Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, and we'll be back with our third segment right after this. All right, welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden with former world number one Mats Vlander, former Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, and this segment is brought to you by the USPTA, and I want to just tell you three things that you know about what the USPTA is doing to look after its pros during everything that they are going through, uh, which has been a very, very tough time for our industry. First of all, they're offering free education. You can go online, and some of the things that you were being charged for in the past with respect to adding more more drill content to your repertoire, whatever the case may be, you can come out of this difficult time uh, with much more to offer your students when you go back on the court, and it's not going to cost you anything. So that's uh, a real good opportunity for USPTA pros. Uh, there's going to be a stimulus package, which is being worked on between USTA and USPTA, which a lot of money is going to be flowing uh, out of the USTA coffers in an, in an effort to help the USPTA pros uh, with regard to paying a substantial uh, amount of your 2021 dues. So they're making some very generous overtures 
toward the USPTA. You'll hear more details on that as that all gets finalized. And finally, we're all working together. Uh, I've actually talked to, with you a lot about this match, which are safety practices, best practices for entering back into the sport and making sure that you're doing it the right way so that we all come out of this healthy. I think as a sport, tennis definitely wants to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So thank you to the USPTA for everything that they're doing for trying to help our sport make sure that we make a return as safely uh, as possible and making sure that tennis pros uh, are able to stay financially solvent during this time. Okay, guys. What are you proud of? I think that we've we've talked a lot about different things that we've maybe done as individuals uh, in, in the sport. I've got even even at my level certain things that I've I've been proud of uh, as a tennis player. And Johnny, uh, I know you don't like to talk about yourself as a player, but I'm going to brag about you. You won the Pan Am Games with Eric Carita. Uh, I know that you've enjoyed having the opportunity to represent the United States and to represent the Texas Longhorns, and you've done so quite admirably. But when you look at the sport as a whole, what do you take great pride in, um, in that this is the sport that you chose to uh, to participate in and, and devote so much of your life to? Well, it is a great question, Andy. And, um, you know, when I think about tennis as a sport that I that I basically, you know, played from a very young age to, to you know, a later age in life and, and was basically – you know, huge part of my life. I look at tennis as a game, an individual sport. Uh, it's a sport that, um, you know, I think tennis and, and, and boxing have some similarities where it's basically one-on-one warfare against the guy across the net. You have no help out there. You have no teammates to, to, to get support from. It's you trying to figure out the strategy, trying to figure out you know, how you're going to beat that guy across the net from you physically, mentally. And, um, you, you just, it's, it's all on your own. There's no, there's no help whatsoever. It's, it's what you've learned on the court from your coaches and you, you have to go on that court and figure everything out yourself. So I think what it does is, is it teaches you the, the, the tremendous ability to figure things out uh, for yourself mentally, physically, and I think when you go into life after tennis, those are attributes that, that will help you forever. I think that those are lessons that uh, that will help you as you, you know, figure out life, uh, having to, to figure it out yourself. It, it sounds like uh, internal problem-solving skills, uh, a level of independence, and as you say, I, and I couldn't agree more, even though it's an independent sport, I think it, it actually teaches you some life lessons that makes you uh, a better team player and probably helps you keep your cool under pressure with some of the things that, as you say, you're going you're gonna to deal with uh, as life throws you some curveballs. Having been uh, a skilled and advanced and successful tennis player, you've, you've had to deal with plenty to get to that point. Look, even even when you're in a team atmosphere, if it's the Davis Cup or a college match, you have your teammates around you rooting you on. You have a coach in the background rooting you on. But you're on the court, and you're having to figure it out yourself. And I think, you know, that's what separates our sport from all the sports. I mean, you look at football, basketball, soccer, you know, you have help out there. If you're not playing well that day, you can lean on a teammate. And when you're not playing well in a tennis match – You've got to figure out a new strategy, a new way to be able to change up your game 
and and try to try to win not playing well you just can't count on anyone and i think that like you said um the, you know this makes you tough this makes you disciplined and i think these are things that uh will help you later in life and that's why i think tennis uh being an individual sport is uh is one of the greatest things and Matt, that really kind of dovetails right into your philosophy. It sounds very similar to the things that I've heard you say about your sport. And, and you won seven majors, and I know that you're proud of every single one of those, winning Wimbledon in 86 with Yoki. But what about winning Davis Cup titles for Sweden? Was that maybe a great source of pride for you, putting putting that, that, that sweatshirt on with the Swedish flag and, and representing a country with such a rich tennis tradition? Yeah, I, I mean, my best memories are um, definitely the Davis Cup memories. Uh, we, I think, mean, we made uh, the Davis Cup final seven years in a row um, when I was part of the team. Uh, I won three of them, uh, lost three finals, and one final I chose to get to get married at the same time. So, uh, Mikael Pernfors took my spot. Uh, but yeah, those are the memories that, I mean, when you get together with, with your friends, with Joachim Newstrom, you mentioned him, and Anders Jarrett, and Stefan Edberg, uh, those are the memories that you talk about. No one is really seems to be interested in talking about my victory at the French Open in 1982. Um, so yeah, Davis Cup is, is very proud, but, but I like to, to maybe, um, take a different route. I, I remember so, uh, Roger Federer did not play uh, the French Open a couple of years ago because of a choice. There's a couple of them that he missed because of injury. One year he wanted to focus on the grass courts and he didn't play the French Open and, and then he came back and played it last year and of course, um, uh, made the semis. Uh, tennis is bigger than Roger Federer. Tennis is bigger than, uh, than any, any tennis player that's ever lived. As a game, it, it's more important. I mean, when you have, uh, people, like the the late great Arthur Ashe comes from tennis, and the the things that Arthur Ashe did off the court uh, when it comes to the anti-apartheid situation in South Africa, um, with uh, better opportunities for the African American tennis player and African American human being, tennis brought Arthur Ashe forwards. Uh, on the women's side, Billie Jean King. I mean, it's just difficult to find. And a sportswoman who's done more for equal rights uh, for women than Billie Jean King. And would she have made such an impact uh, without tennis? No, most probably not. So I think uh, along the lines that Johnny is talking about, it teaches you to, to solve problems uh, and you can take it on further in life. So um, it's it's. I mean, I know there are fans out there that are. Uh, like, oh, I can't believe he's saying it's bigger. Yeah, it is more important than Ro the great Roger Federer or Serena Williams. So uh, that that's the first thing. For me, I gave up a match point in 1982 at the French Open in the semifinals against Jose Luis Clerc. Um, I was up match point uh, in the semis, getting to the finals. There's a bad call. Sharon Pires said, game, set, match, Villain there. And I came up to the chair. I said, I can't win like that. That point was in, and we need to replay that point because I want to win fair and square. And so I, because of that, I've gotten so many fair play trophies. I believe uh, what people, uh, and some people don't even know it, I think, but why I'm so, sort of uh, got a job at Eurosport and why I'm relevant, and I think um, maybe trustworthy in, in, in many ways is because of what happened there. Uh, it wasn't my choice. 
It was just something that happened, and I had to I had to stand up and say, I don't want to. So I think that's what tennis does, and I think solving problems on your own, that was a situation where I am on my own, and I can make this decision. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm very proud of that. Of course, over the years, I had a lot of opponents look at me and, and after the umpire makes the call, they look at me and say, hey, Matt, is, is the umpire right here? I mean, how did you see it? So it put me in a tricky situation sometimes, but I was very proud of doing that as a 17-year-old. Um, I'm so proud to be part of the, the, the generation that is now um, on the men's side with Roger and Rafa and Novak. The way that they have pushed each other physically, first of all, to get better and better and better, and they're chasing this historical record of, of the most Grand Slams once you're done. Uh, but the way they they behave towards one another, the etiquette, the sportsmanship, I mean, they're fighting for history, and they seem to be on a very, very, very friendly basis. Uh, and uh, again, it's, it's what tennis does to you. The things that Roger Federer uh, and uh, Rafa and Novak do with their foundations and playing a match in, in Cape Town, South Africa in front of 40, I believe 41,000 people in Mexico City with uh, uh, Roger and Sasha Zverev. I mean, it goes way beyond professional tennis. Tennis, uh, the rules and, and the obstacles that is uh, a tennis match and the measurements of the court teaches you so much. And it really brings out the best in people. For some people, it took a while. For John McEnroe, it took a while to bring the best out of him. But you see, even with John, who we think is one of the most competitive tennis players of all time, he cares more about the sport of tennis than his own record or his own uh, wins and losses. And, and I think it's, it's taken him some time to, to get to this point, but it's very apparent. Andre Agassi, another entrepreneur that comes to mind, the things that he does with his uh, with his schools around the country is just incredible. And it's tennis that have given these guys uh, the pathway towards doing bigger and greater things than what they did on the courts. Johnny, you and I knew that when this question was posed that we were going to love uh, Matt's response to it. And I think that that goes without saying that we were right. Um, you know, one of the things that I find to be a double-edged sword about what we're discussing right now, and I have always found this era of sportsmanship with Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic to be a very appealing element of our sport. But you talk to some of the fringe tennis fans, and you have them make comments like, well, I enjoyed tennis back in the day when, you know, it was Connors and McEnroe, and McEnroe hated Lendl, and, and, and sort of your sports fan mentality was a little bit more, it, it, it found the adversarial relationships between players to be appealing and to be great theater, whereas I think as people within the sport, we enjoy the sportsmanship level of it and the type of people that are, uh, you know, being produced as a result of watching these guys set that example. So, Johnny, I want to ask you this. When you're standing on the other side of the net warming up with John McEnroe versus when you're on the other side of the net warming up with Mats Wielander, obviously in both of those cases, you're facing a guy that would end up winning seven major championships. But was there a level of comfort that maybe you felt in warming up with Mats because you know he's a great guy versus Johnny Mack who maybe wasn't regarded that way, and as a result, it may have been a little bit more of an intimidating feeling uh, warming up with him before you played him? 
Well, yeah, it was pretty intimidating, Andy, you know, um, for me, getting on the court with John McEnroe, and, and I, it was actually in a doubles match on center court at Forest Hills, and he was playing with, with uh, the great late Vetus Gerolitis, got two, two guys that I had, you know, always looked up to, saw on TV all the time. So, um, you know, at one point in the warm-up, it was very tough to move my, my legs, actually, because I was, <laughs> a little, I, was, I was a little bit in awe, let's say. So, so Johnny Mack saw that I was shanking the balls, and so he basically fed them to me really delicately to make sure that I could uh, get, in, get into the group. So I always, I always, th- I always appreciate John McEnroe for... For, not, for, for noticing that and, and, and helping me out in that warm-up. But we did end up settling down, me and um, Bud Schultz, and uh, uh, ended up uh, playing two tight sets, ended up losing. But it was a great, great experience for me to play, play against those guys for sure. What about being opposite Matt's? What were you thinking? I mean, you knew of him being the number one seed uh, at the Orange Bowl, but obviously when you guys played, he had yet to win the French Open. Did you feel like you could go out there and this is another guy that maybe you could go out there and, and you know, who knows? You know, Matt's wasn't the imposing figure that a John McEnroe was. However, you know, it was a junior match. He was seated first. It was 1979. I, I was playing well. And I was a top junior in the U.S., so I was a little more confident. The, the problem that I ran into with Matt's was that, I mean, he never missed a ball, and he was strong, and, and he hit deep, and, and uh, it, the guy was, it was very hard to win a point. I didn't have the huge weapons, a huge serve that could, that could uh, make an impact, but it, it, was a, it was a decent match, and um, I ended up playing him again in uh, the first round of Key Biscayne. I was not playing well. I think he was two or three in the world. Um, I did get straight into the tournament on my ranking, and he beat me pretty good. But uh, it was such an honor to, to have played him, and, and uh, their, their memories I'll always remember, that's for sure. Matt's close it out today. Uh, you know, just the fact that we're, you know, we've all taken such different paths to, to get to where we're at right now. And, you know, at, at 55 years of age, and Johnny, you're a little older than that, and I'm a little older than both of you guys. But uh, what would you like to see us try to accomplish? What do you want the message to be that we get out to these folks? Obviously, we, we all want people to know about gravity fitness and tennis. We want people to know about the Arizona Tennis Classic, but uh, but we want to put you out front and center, and we want you to be the guy that really that really takes the messaging to to the highest level because uh, you you hold you're held in such high regard by the entire tennis world. Yeah, I, I mean, I really feel that um, first of all, still when I get on a tennis court, there is a uh, a, a meditation session that's going on. It's obviously physical and you get a little tired and, and you get explosive, uh, an explosive workout. You, you get strength, uh, from your legs up into your brain from trying to solve problems. Uh, but, uh, I think that we need to push and I'm trying to do it. We need to, what Johnny was talking about. I mean, this sport, it can teach you so much about going into whether you're just hitting balls, it's the unexpected that's about to happen. It doesn't matter how prepared you are, but the unexpected will happen in terms of you're hitting your forehand better today than yesterday or, or you can't get the, ball, the second serve in play. So you have to figure it out. I know that being proactive is a really, really important uh, aspect of, uh, of tennis and life in general, but I'm not sure that it's more important than being able to react 
to maybe a mistake or, or maybe your opponent uh, playing to feel comfortable in a situation that really is uncomfortable, have pretty low expectations when it comes to how well you hit the ball, but have high expectations, which is what I'm trying to tell people, uh, have, have high expectations on, on the things that you can control, like your footwork, like your, your turning your shoulders, like watching the ball. These are things that I am really good at. I always tell people, I think one of, I'm one of the best tennis players in the world when the ball is on the other side of the net. That's when I uh, blossom as a player because I keep moving and I keep trying to figure out what kind of angle is the racket face coming into the ball from my opponent. Uh, what do they look like when they're hitting? And I think body language is something that I'm sure uh, in, in the business world is as important as your academic skills, uh, administrative skills, is your attitude towards your fellow workers or, or going into trying to negotiate a contract. So again, tennis is just such a, a mini version of life in general. And I think sometimes we go in thinking that we can be perfect. It's very difficult to be perfect on a tennis court, and it turns out it's tough to be perfect in uh, life in general. He is the great Mats Wielander, seven-time major singles champion, former number one in the world. I speak for former Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine and myself when I say that we are both very honored to be teaming up with you for the first dance and hopefully a lot more with KickServeRadio.com. We hope that you all that are listening will continue doing so. Our next podcast will include a very special guest that you all are definitely going to want to tune in for. So thanks for listening to KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden, joined by Mats Vlander and Johnny Levine. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll look forward to catching you guys next time. In the meantime, good luck out on the courts. Stay safe, stay healthy, and see you soon. Yep.